Listener Production. Please leave your message after the tone. Why am I jealous of my ex? I am so stressed all the time. How do I get into a routine? Is TikTok making me anxious? I think I'm being manipulated. Someone told me you could live with half a brain. This is Do You Fucking Mind? Mindset Hacks for a Badass Life. Hosted by me, Alexis Fernandez. Hello, my beautiful beans. We're so close to the end of the year and it's almost Christmas. So thank you so much for listening this year. As a little treat, I've gathered up some of the best brain facts as voted by you. So these are the brain facts that you, my beans, found the most interesting. And we're going to do a countdown. So starting with the third most voted for brain fact. Number three, aphantasia. So the brain fact of today is aphantasia. Now, this is a condition that affects between 2% to 5% of the population, uh, which is actually quite a bit when I think about it. And statistically speaking, that would mean that a few, like thousand of you guys listening here, if not, uh, you know, a high number, would likely have aphantasia going by these statistics. So I'm going to get you to do something. I'm going to get you to close your eyes right now while you're listening to this. And I want you to imagine something. Imagine that you're sitting on a bench in a park and there's no one next to you on that bench. It's just you. And you look up and in front of you, there's, it's quite a rich park. Okay. There's a lot going on. There's all these plants that are quite short Then there's really, really tall trees. And then you look past those trees and there's skyscrapers behind that park. Now, in this imagination, I want you to ask yourself, were there animals? Were there birds, pets? Were people walking past? Were there people on roller skates? What was going on? How many people were around you? Was it just busy with plants and trees, but there was no one else around you but yourself? And now open your eyes and realize that there are some people that actually would not have been able to picture anything that I just mentioned. Okay. So that is aphantasia. It's the inability to visualize or very limited ability to visualize. And this is also referred as image-free thinking, or some people refer to it as blind imagination. So it's just an inability to picture something in your mind's eye. So if you can't see something in your mind's eye, how does that affect you in your day-to-day life? They did a bunch of studies on people with aphantasia and a control group of people that did not have aphantasia. And this, and one particular study was where they got the participants in both the groups to draw images based on photos that they had shown them. So photos of rooms, like I think it was like three different rooms. And then the participants would then draw an image or an image of each photo that they had seen. What they found was that in the aphantasia group, there was substantially less detail in those pictures versus the control group. Or really interestingly, the aphantasia group sometimes would use words instead of images to describe what they recalled. So even though though they were saying, we've shown you a photo of this kitchen, for example, Um, now you've got to close your eyes, imagine this kitchen, or you don't even have to close them, but imagine this kitchen in your mind's eye and recreate it via drawing. And there were some people in that control group that instead of drawing these images, they were writing down everything that they had seen. So, you know, table, knives, sink, etc. 
And this shows that they have a different way. People with aphantasia have a different way of remembering things. That is a different kind of representation other than visual representation. So in this case, with these participants, they were seeing verbal representation. It can affect, if you have aphantasia, it can affect certain aspects of your memory because a lot of the time visual visualization and imagery is used to aid in our memory. So it can really affect autobiographical memories. So these life memories of events in your life, because we rely quite heavily on visual imagery from our past. So these memories, while of course you can still recount these certain major things in your life happening, they might not be as rich in detail or context if you can't visualize the imagery around it. And because you don't have the imagery around it, that memory might not be as strong in your mind versus someone who can add all these other components to it. Because the richer a memory is, that is with detail or with um, emotion, the easier it is going to be to recall and kind of keep that memory in your long-term memory. Another interesting thing is that this is not always, in some cases, yes, but it's not always across all senses. So they can, you know, someone with aphantasia can imagine a tune or a song, but not the imagery or the visual images that go with it or smells and things like that. And they might also experience visual imagery in their dreams. So you'll hear of a lot of people that have aphantasia, but also have visual dreams. But Remember that it's very different to try and imagine something at will. So think, okay, right now I've got to picture something in my mind now. So you're at will trying to visually recall something versus spontaneous imagery when you're sleeping. They're two completely different processes of the brain. Another thing that people with aphantasia have reported is that they are imagining concepts more so than this idea of an image. So one person in particular in an interview that I was watching on YouTube describes it as a cloud of words that are bunched together to represent where things are. So they know of a word and and attached to that word is another word, attached to that word is another word. So if you ask this person to imagine or describe what their bathroom vanity looks like, they would be able to tell me aspects of it, what is on there, like a list of things. But they're not doing this through visualization, whereas someone without aphantasia could literally think instantly, you could think my bathroom vanity, you know, where things are kept, you know, if they're going to be in the drawers, if they're sitting on the vanity, how many things are, do you have your hand soap? What does that hand soap look like? You've got all of that in your visual imagination. Whereas someone with aphantasia is simply um, going back to these concepts and these word clouds. So that's one of the common ways that they will recall something. This was discovered in the 1880s by Sir Francis Galton, and he discovered it because he was asking people to visualize things like a breakfast table, and he realized that there was a bunch of people that just were not able to visualize their breakfast table at all. And in most cases, this occurs from birth, but most people don't even discover that they have this until they're teens, early to late teens, that's a common time for people to realize that they have aphantasia. And the and the reason for this is that it's not until they hear other people explain visualization in a way that they that it actually pings something and they're like, wait a minute, I've never thought a lot of people that have aphantasia, they say that they've always heard people talk about visualization, but they never made the link of like visual to visualization and imagine to image. So they thought here I here I'm using my imagination, but not with visual images. So a lot of people will live into their teens, sometimes later, and think, whoa, whoa, 
what do you mean you see an actual image? What are you talking about? You know, so it's, it's, it's often as a child, you know, you, you, you're working with what you've got and you don't really notice the deficit, especially because when you talk to other children, they're not describing things in such rich detail versus how maybe someone would in adulthood. So it might not be noticeable until they're a lot older. And it normally, okay, scientists don't know what causes it, why it happens, but we know that it is often through birth. It's something in the genes that's causing this. And it can also be caused through uh, trauma or a brain injury. And when I say trauma, that could be physical trauma or it may be emotional trauma as well, may cause something like this. They find that in people with aphantasia, your visual activity is normal when you're seeing things in front of them. So when you wire someone up or when you're putting someone through an fMRI and watching the activity of the brain, when they're getting someone to actually look at an image, the visual activity is normal within the brain regions as anybody else. But they found that when they asked the participant to imagine something, whereas normally the visual areas in your brain would light up when you imagine something because it's all linked to imagery, they're finding that other areas of the brain are lighting up instead. And one area in particular is the semantic retrieval part lit up. And this is because often they're using words to imagine a face, for example, or words to imagine the room instead of images. Um it also can affect the mem- your memory in the sense of using imagery to help jog your memory. So if you look at me, for example, when I go for a walk or a drive or I'm going somewhere new, I semi-consciously but very subconsciously I use imagery to help create landmarks in my mind and create like a map of where I've been. So a building, a certain tree, I you know, when I turn a corner, I like kind of – you know, cement the image of what that corner looked like when I turn. And I don't do this that actively, but I know that when I'm returning and I'm trying to find my way back, that's when I'm pulling out all these images of this map that I've laid out in my mind. And I've always done that to get places. So you can imagine that someone who doesn't have this visual representation is going to either use a completely different way of finding their way back, or they might have difficulty in finding their way back due to the fact that they can't use visual imagery. So that is the brain fact of of today. There's currently no way, no known way of treating it as it stands. But of course, there's always going to be, you know, more research and studies done as to also the cause because we're really in the dark. Science is really in the dark about what exactly causes it as well. Hopefully you found that interesting. Okay. Counting down to number two, the brain fact that was the second most listened to slash favorite brain fact. So far, it's a juicy one. Let's get into CJD and mad cow's disease, also referred to as bovine spongiform encephalopathy. We're going to get straight into the brain fact of today. I'm going to quickly talk about well, I'm not even going to touch much on mad cow's disease, but the, the proper name for mad cow's disease is actually called bovine spongiform encephalopathy. Mad cow's disease. Let's just call it that. Humans 
cannot get mad cow's disease. But if they eat food that's contaminated with this disease, they can get the human version of it, which is called CJD, or it could be called variant CJD. And CJD stands for Krautsfeldt-Jacob disease. So it's obviously a name, Krautsfeldt-Jacob disease. And this is a fatal degenerative disorder and it eventually destroys the central nervous system. So it targets the spinal cord and the brain and the brainstem. And over time, it kind of breaks it all down and you die. And it, it is pretty rare to have CJD. So in CJD, the brain cells, the spinal cord, they're all destroyed because little holes begin to form all around the brain and spinal cord. And because of this, the symptoms are very, very severe. So it's a really fast onset of dementia-like symptoms. And well, it is dementia. It's a loss of memory, difficulty with body movements, like your gait, difficulty with walking, difficulty with speech, just motor deficits in general. And once it begins, so once the onset of these symptoms begin, the progression is very, very fast. So from onset of the symptoms, but in other words, when the symptoms are noticeable, to death, it's normally one year or less. So it's very aggressive, very, very quickly. And every single patient that contracts this disease will die and there is no cure for it. So it is very rare, but there is no cure for it. Now, eating meat from a cow with bovine spongiform encephalopathy is only one of the ways to contract this disease. Um, that is the variant CJD versus CJD. It can also be inherited. So if somebody has CJD, um, I'm going to explain to you in a while because I did say that it's a one year before you die, but I'll explain it in a sec. But it can be inherited, so it can be passed down if you have kids. Um, it can be transmitted as well, but transmission isn't really easy. It has to occur through like a transfusion or a transplant but like casual contact with another person and their saliva or through sex is not what's going to do it. It's more like transfusion of infected blood or infected tissues. But in most cases, it is sporadic, meaning that there's like no definite reason as to why it's happened. Um, now I'm going to tell you an interesting story. And I, this was really hectic. This is before I started my master's, I was put in touch with somebody that worked at the Brain and Mind Center at Sydney University. And he was generous enough to give me a tour and spoke to me about the studies that he does and, you know, all of his body of work. And he focused heavily on CJD as one of the things that that he, you know, dedicated a lot of his research and time to. And he showed me, he was able to show me bits of brain under a telescope. So you could see the difference between a healthy brain and a, a brain with somebody that had CJD and they dye the brain in kind of either this pink or purpley kind of dye. So the contrast of the tissue is a lot more visible under the microscope. Then they go through this whole process to make the brain more like a... Um, like a hard rubber, so that way it's easier to slice. And they slice it in these like really, really, really thin, like we're talking less than a millimetre thin slices. They put it between two sheets of glass and then you can see it under a microscope and you could see the difference. And he would show me the difference between healthy subject and a brain with CJD and there would be all these kind of like what looked like bubbles, but they're holes in the brain. Um, and he told me this really interesting case of, because I just said that it passed through transmission, right? And he told me this really interesting case that decades ago, this definitely happened in Japan. Now, don't quote me on any other country that did this, but this is definitely a big case in Japan. Between the years of 1975 and 2008, there was like 132 cases of this 
It's called duramata graft associated CJD. And basically, duramata is like the outer, one of the outer protective layers of your brain. Okay, so you've got these three layers of protection over your brain. You've got the pia mater, which is like a really, really thin, thin, thin sheet. You've got the arachnoid mater, which is kind of like arachnoid as in like a spider web. So it's kind of like between the pia and the dura, which is the outer layer. You've got this like web-like layer that where you have cerebral spinal fluid flowing through it. So that's protective. And then you've got the outer layer, which is called the dura mater, which is kind of like the consistency of like a thin fingernail. That's kind of what you want to think about. There are when when people go through surgery and they need to have like a, a you know anything done with their brain the dura mater gets removed and damaged so to replace the dura mater whether it's through traumatic injury or through a surgery where you need to then re- replace that dura mater often you get that dura mater through a cadaver you know, donor. So basically someone who's died, they've donated their body parts and it's made of cadaver. But what was happening back in the day is that they would have all these, also, if you are queasy, probably fast forward the next couple of minutes um, because you're not going to love this, but fucking fascinating if you're into this. What they would do is they would get all the dura matter of these cadavers. So donor people, they would grab all the dura matter and they would put it in he explained it to me as like a vat, right? And they would break down the dura mater and create, you know, like with all these donors together, they would mix it all together and create kind of this way of, uh, look, I don't know if it was a paste or whatever, but it's like this substance that could then be used on people after surgery or during surgery to replenish that dura mater that was lost, whether it was through an accident, head trauma, through um, through basically patients needing like a graft after like a craniotomy or or injury or whatever. So the scary thing is that if there was one person, one cadaver, one donor that had CJD, then everyone who got a uh, graft from that donor vat would then go on and contract CJD, right? Because it's through transmission, through donor, dura, graft, matter. Okay. So they found that in this case in Japan, 132 cases of duramata graft associated CJD was made up 60% of the patients worldwide at the time with CJD. So patients receiving this cadaver duramata. Now, the scary thing is that it has a really, really long incubation period. So that means that once you initially contract the disease, it could be decades before the symptoms appear. But once the symptoms appear, it's very fast and it's very aggressive and it's like one year from symptoms appearing to death. How does it occur? It's caused by a prion and that is a misfolded protein. So when you have a misfolded protein, it passes on this malformation to other healthy variants of that same protein. And then this continues to get transmitted and transmitted until there's like widespread damage through the central nervous system or, you know, in this case, through the central nervous nervous system. It also cannot be diagnosed 
via a test. So you can only guess, right? Um, the only way to do this is, the only way to properly diagnose it is post-mortem or through a brain biopsy, but that's a really risky procedure to do when someone's alive, so it's not really done. Um, and what doctors have to go off are the symptoms and how quickly the onset of the symptoms are. And they, so it's really hard to be like, yep, you definitely have this disease and you're definitely going to die in a year because they're, they're not 100% sure because they have to basically look at the brain under a microscope to determine for sure if this person has CJD. And like I said, when you look at the brain tissue under the microscope, it shows like the brain is quite spongy and filled with all these tiny little holes where nerves used to be but have since been destroyed. Anyway, that is the brain fact of today. I found that really, really interesting. It's one of the things that made me like definitely want to then go ahead and do my master's because when he took me through like the labs and was showing me all that stuff, I was like, this is unbelievably interesting stuff. And anyway, here I am talking about the brain every single day. And number one, the lady who could smell Parkinson's. Okay, so the brain fact is about a woman who could smell Parkinson's disease. I found this really, really fascinating. This actually came out a couple of years ago, but I haven't shared it on the podcast. And if you haven't heard of this story, it is fascinating. So it's this woman from Scotland. Her name is Joy Milne, and she's considered to be a super smeller. And the medical term for that is hyperosmia. So it's just people that have a really heightened sense of smell. And they kind of compare it to like something between a human and a dog, something that sits in the middle as far as their ability to smell things. So she has the ability to smell Parkinson's disease. And she discovered it in this really interesting way. So when her husband was around 32-ish, she noticed this strange smell on him, this strange odour. And they were both trying to work out what it was. She didn't really find it that pleasant, but it was just like this musky odour and she could not work out what it was. No one else could smell it. He couldn't smell it. She thought it might be his breath or it was his body odour or his clothes and they just could not work it out. No matter how much he showered or washed his clothes or brushed his teeth, they just couldn't work it out. So she basically said, well, I stopped kind of talking about it because I don't want to offend him. It it is what it is, but the smell didn't go away. It just remained. And about roughly 10 years later, he got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. When he was about 44, 45, he got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. So she also states that as the years went on, as these 10 years progressed, that smell got stronger and stronger and stronger. She not only did it not go away, but it was more intense and she just wasn't getting used to it. She could smell it all the time. So she claims that it's this heavy, musky smell that is kind of like a thick smell, if you can imagine something like that. Anyway, one day after her husband, Les, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, they went to this support group of patients with Parkinson's disease. So there's all these people in the room with the disease and their their family or their, you know, support network as well. And when she walked into the room, she says that that smell that she could smell on her husband was overbearing. It was like she was hit with that exact same smell, but like tenfold. And she realized that that smell that she had detected in her husband was the smell of Parkinson's disease. She noticed that everybody that she met with Parkinson's smelt the same. So when researchers heard about this, because obviously she spoke to the doctors about it, she spoke to researchers about it, 
They were like, we need to get this woman in for a test because she claims that she could smell this 10 years or more before her husband was diagnosed with the disease. And they're a little bit sceptical because they're like, like, maybe it's just him. How could this actually be? So they got her in for, researchers got her into a lab for a test. And what they did is they got 12 people, six of them with Parkinson's disease, six of them as the control group without Parkinson's disease. They bought them all a T-shirt, brand new T-shirt, exactly the same T-shirt. And they got all 12 participants to sleep a night in that T-shirt. Then the following day, those shirts were given to Joy, obviously unlabeled. They all look the same. And she had to, to detect which of those T-shirts were from the Parkinson's patients and which ones were not. She picked out all six of the Parkinson's patients, but then she also pulled out one of the T's from the control group, even though that person didn't have Parkinson's disease, but she still selected one from the control group. So seven out of the 12 she selected. Um, And it turns out that nine months later, that person from the control group who didn't have Parkinson's disease got diagnosed with Parkinson's. So she was able to detect it even when this person or their physicians were not aware that they had the disease. So it turns out that she can detect the molecules within the smell. And with her help, heaps of help, like, you know, working with researchers in the lab trying to work it out, they found that this particular scent was in the sebum, which is the oil, oily part of the skin, the oil produced by the skin. And they found these molecules in the sebum that were specific to Parkinson's disease. Well, it's actually specific compounds that are a lot higher in people with Parkinson's disease versus control. So the compounds are, I'm trying not to butcher how to pronounce these, but hyperic acid, ecosane, and octadecanal. Octadecanal. So these are these compounds that were found in the sebum that the concentrations were higher than in the skin of controls. And that is specific to Parkinson's disease. It's not in any other disease, those, those compounds being a lot higher. So in these trials of this new technique, researchers are able to identify these molecules, these compounds being a lot higher from just a swab, and they're able to get the results back in under an hour. Now that's like in the testing phase. I'm not sure where it's at right now, but if this thing can be rolled out on like a massive scale, then you can imagine the difference that it would make to patients because at the moment there's no definitive way of testing for Parkinson's disease other than diagnosing by observing symptoms, like behavioral symptoms and interviewing the patients, interviewing their family and the people that are close to them and getting like a broad scope understanding of how things are changing for them. And Parkinson's is, you know, it causes tremors, including a whole bunch of other motor deficits, degeneration of the brain and ultimately dementia. And the earlier that the disease can be detected, the earlier you can intervene with treatments which can help the disease, like which can help stop the disease from spreading further or at the very least slow down the course of the disease and it can give the patient really good tools to help them manage their life with Parkinson's disease versus if you then detect it 10 years later by the time the tremors are present there's already been quite a significant amount of damage that's already been done so this is massive breakthrough. And if every single person with Parkinson's has these compounds that are higher, then the ability to detect these compounds may be as simple as, you know, uh, um, 
a machine that can do the same work that Joy's nose does by detecting these compounds. So pretty fucking fascinating. And there's been all these advances in science in the way of Parkinson's disease because of this woman. So wild brain fact. I found that absolutely fascinating. Go look it up. There's all these news articles on this woman. It's unbelievable. There you have it, my beautiful beans. If you liked this episode, just be sure to leave a review in the Apple podcast, pop a rating in Spotify and tell your friends. It is the best way to help me to reach more people who love neuroscience and getting their shit together and psychology and all the above combined into one. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, be kind to yourself, be kind to your brain. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke. Listener.